John chapter 19 once again. And uh, this evening we want to look at the hour has come, uh, smitten. Uh, smitten. That was uh, uh, a word that uh, we would use, or the Bible has used, uh, smitten of God. Uh, and uh, most everyone has a very natural desire to escape uh, impending danger, unless, of course, he thinks nothing can harm him. Uh, we see this from time to time in the natural realm of danger, when a volcano uh, threatens to spew forth its deadly gases and fiery rocks and molten lava. Uh, most would flee, and they would find refuge. They'd find a safe place. Uh, it's only those few who think that no harm can befall them will defiantly remain in the path of the volcano's raging fury. I think we could probably say this about hurricanes, too. Sometimes people uh, say, well, I, nothing's going to hurt me. And uh, so they uh, stay there and instead of finding a place of safety. It's only when we see uh, the danger coming toward them that then they attempt to flee uh, to a place of safety. That's the same attitude found in the spiritual realm. Uh, unfortunately, a very, very few people ever conceive of themselves having to face eternal judgment. Uh, uh, they... They don't think, well, I'm not going to stand before God and, and give an account for my sin. Uh, their view of God is so low and their exalted view of themselves is so high that they can, uh, can bypass any need for salvation. So they sneer at the preaching of the cross. Uh, they sleep their way through discussions on divine judgment. Uh, they refuse to look at their sin against the purity of God's holiness. Uh, they ignore the ominous warnings of God's law. And something different happens when a man comes to some consciousness of his sins. For then he will find himself looking desperately for a refuge from the stormy fire of judgment heading his way. And as long as he thinks nothing of his sin or thinks nothing of divine judgment, then he'll see no real need for a refuge from divine wrath. But when the sense of sin overwhelms him, and when he becomes painfully aware of his own enmity with God and his certain expectation of judgment, the message of the cross of Christ finally makes sense. Now, there are some novel ideas that surround the crucifixion of the Lord. Millions who own no portion of, uh, of the sacrifice on the cross will parade the cross as a quaint religious symbol. Crosses adorn necks, ears, clothing, buildings. Polite discussions on the crucifixion even take up on the conversation on Good Friday. But I wonder how many really understand the meaning of the cross of Jesus Christ. How many understand the reason for the cross and its necessity for the salvation of sinners? Because it's only the cross of Jesus Christ that sinners can find uh, refuge from the judgment of God. So we want to consider the sacrifice offered for sinners upon the cross. Notice, first of all, it was a willing sacrifice. I think we must never view the scenes of the Lord's crucifixion as being outside the control of God. Uh, there are no mistakes operating in the arrest, the trial, the suffering, the death of Jesus Christ. All of this was for divine, as according to divine purpose, and that purpose had an eternal that was the eternal salvation of sinners, 
And uh, John ends his explanation of the trial before Pilate with these words. He says, Then delivered he him therefore unto them to be crucified. Now, did a mere man deliver the Son of God into the hands of the executioners? Well, yes, but only because of the preordained plan of God. This was not just a man exerting his authority over God. But this was God the Son giving himself into the hands of sinful men to carry out the eternal counsels of the Godhead. Now the Roman executioners probably would have been a squad of four or so soldiers under the command of a centurion took Jesus from Pilate for the purpose of crucifying him. It says here, and they took Jesus and led him away, and he, bearing his cross, went forth unto a place called uh, a place called the place of the skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha. Now we find here we understand that the word, a Latin word, Calvaria, uh, means a place of the skull. That's where we get our term Calvary. And uh, it's actually from the Latin word Calvaria. And it means the skull. We sing, years I spent in vanity and pride at Calvary. You know, we sing that song. Uh, And uh, in doing so, we're referring to the place of the skull. Uh, We may not think of that. You know, when we think of Calvary, we usually think of the cross. But the word Calvary has to do with the place where the cross was put. It was not a pretty place. It wasn't a sort of place you would go for a family picnic. Uh, it was painted with the blood of criminals who regularly died upon the Roman crosses. It was worn with the bare feet of men, criminals stripped naked to further shame them before the masses of people that would watch. And as they were unwillingly walked to their death, no one wanted to go to Calvary except one. Calvary meant a cruel, excruciating death. That term excruciating finds its root in the Latin language as well. Latin word excruciatus, meaning out of the cross. Crucifixion and excruciation became synonymous during that era. The Romans had perfected the act of crucifixion in order to bring about the greatest sense of excruciation in their victims. They had learned this form of execution from the Carthaginians who had been introduced to it through Alexander the Great after he discovered it among the Persians. So the Romans used this only upon non-Romans, though. And they were able to bring about a slow death with the maximum pain through intense suffering. No one wanted to go to Calvary, except one. And through, though the Roman executioners took Jesus, Jesus brings out the fact that he, bearing his cross, went forth into the place of a skull. Now the emphasis here of the Apostle John is that there is no reluctance, there's no hesitation in our Lord in facing the wrath of God on behalf of sinners. He'd already asked the Father if there was any possibility of the cup of wrath to pass away from him. 
There was no other way for salvation for sinners, not by religious observance, not by moral living, not by professions, not by penance. The only way for salvation of sinners was for Jesus Christ to bear his cross to Calvary and to die as an atoning sacrifice. Now we notice here, this is a willing sacrifice. And so we notice, first of all, the innocent bearing guilt. The innocent bearing guilt. Calvary was a place of guilt. We see that John mentions, and two other with him on either side, one. And they were crucified with our Lord. Uh, We know from the synoptic gospels that these men were criminals who justly deserved death. Many had gone before them, justly dying at the hand of the Roman executioners, and they too had carried their cross, but not willingly, certainly not with resolve. And these who were guilty of crimes against the Roman law deserved death. Jesus Christ, though, was innocent. It was quite a scene to see the innocent Son of God, spotless, free from sin, crucified there in the middle, a prominent position in the middle of two thieves. Now, why did he do this? Well, the innocent was bearing the guilt of the guilty before the judgment of God. Now, all men have sin in them, but not Christ. It's our nature to sin, but not the nature of the God-man, Jesus Christ. And from out of our own hearts come forth the external sins of life, but never from the sinless heart of Jesus. None of us can claim innocence. And that can only be said of Jesus Christ. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And that describes us. But in all points, tempted like as we are, yet without sin, that describes Jesus. But we also have sin on us. All men have sin in them, but not Christ. We have also sin on us. And by this, I would imply the matter of guilt due to our sin because it is actually breaking the law of God. For instance, if you drive 65 miles per hour on a county road, you're probably violating the law. I haven't seen any county roads where it has 65 miles an hour, okay? If you're not caught by sheriff deputy, are you still guilty? Well, yes, you are. You have sin in you. But if you have been clocked on radar by a police officer and he pulls you over, gives you a speeding ticket, that ticket declares you have sin on you as well. You're guilty of breaking the law and you must find, uh, face the consequences of that guilt. You see, we have sin in us, but we also have it on us. But again, Jesus Christ took our place as a substitute for sinners on the cross. He had no sin in him or no sin on him. And that is all of our guilt before God as lawbreakers was transferred to him. So he had no sin in him, but our sin was placed on him. Our sin was then placed upon him. Just as the high priest would lay his hand upon a lamb to transfer the guilt and the guilt of the people to the Lamb before it was sacrificed for the atonement of sin, even so Jesus Christ received the transfer of our guilt as atoned for our sin. It says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. 
who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sins should live unto righteousness by whose stripes ye are healed. 1 Peter 2.24 So you have the innocent bearing guilt. Secondly, you have the sovereign bearing judgment. The astonishing thing is that the sovereign Lord bore his own judgment on the cross. John said that Jesus was bearing his cross. I know that many would picture Jesus carrying the whole cross. I mean, you look at uh, books that kind of uh, give pictures of of this, and and you find this all over the place, Uh, him carrying the whole cross. But most likely, those who were being crucified carried the palabulum, uh, or the crossbar of the cross. The crossbar itself weighed 75 to 100 pounds, which after the agony of the scourging, we talked about how he was scourged uh, this morning to the point of death. That was quite a weight to carry through the streets before the jeering mobs. And our Lord had raw flesh on his back, having experienced that excessive loss of blood during the scourging with a leather whip and its accompanying pieces of metal and bone. And the Romans were expert at almost, almost killing a man during that scourging. But they would not, they would stop short of killing him. And then he would carry his cross, his, the cross piece of the cross to the place of his execution. And once the, the criminal had arrived at the site of the crucifixion, he would be thrown to the ground with the bloody wounds of his scourging, be exposed to the dirt and the rocks and with his arms slightly bent, He would have five to seven inch long square spikes nailed through a particular spot in his wrist that would cause his wrist to be drawn and the pain to intensify because the wrist, the spikes resting on the nerves. The soldiers would then lift the man nailed to the crossbar onto the stipes or the gibbet that was already sunk on the ground or into the ground and the feet were nailed to the stipes with his knees bent turned at a slight angle. And then he faced the agony of trying to breathe. And the weight of his body pulled on his wrists and palms as it was considered during that era. It actually caused a reversal of normal breathing. So that when we actively inhale and passively exhale, victims of the crucifixion passively inhale and actively exhale. And what is this meant was that for a victim to exhale, he had to pull himself up on his nail-spiked hands and he had to push himself up with his nail-spiked feet so that his diaphragm could engage long enough to exhale the air from his lungs. And when he dropped back down, his lungs would fill with air and he faced the same agonizing process. And all the while, his bloody back was rubbing up and down the wooden stipes And while the pain shooting through his arms and shoulders and feet and legs were like painful bolts of lightning striking again and again and again. Was this simply a matter of Jesus seeking to show us how to live sacrificially? No. It was the God of the universe. The God, the sovereign, the mighty Lord the judge of all men receiving his own judgment against sinners on behalf of sinners. 
As Paul put it, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. It's Jesus Christ accomplishing the work which the Father gave him to do. And it's so easy sometimes to just kind of gloss over that and not really think of the suffering that he went through. We think of the cross. We don't think of the agony and the suffering. We don't consider the weight of our sin against God and the mercy of God, though, in forgiving us and removing that enmity between us. So it was a willing sacrifice. Secondly, it was a necessary sacrifice. Again, why not just bypass the cross? You know, I mentioned this morning, why not just send Jesus to some remote island off by himself? Well, it was obviously a horrible instrument of suffering and torture. And why did the Son of God have to suffer the cross I already have quoted Galatians 3.13, where it said, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. It was necessary for Jesus Christ to become a curse for us. In God the Father's eyes, Jesus became our substitute. Isaiah says, Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, and yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. Once our iniquity had fallen upon Jesus Christ, the justice of God demanded that he bear the full weight of divine judgment against sinners. Now, the language of both the Old Testament and the New Testament in regard to sacrifices, and particularly in regard to Christ's death, is that it's substitutionary. The animals that were offered sacrificially upon the altar in ancient Israel's temple had no sin of their own. They were substitutes that pointed to the only sufficient substitute, Jesus Christ. And it was necessary for a sacrifice to bear the judgment of God's justice so that he might be just in giving life to the sinner. So this necessary sacrifice was, first of all, we notice my crimes. And it's the songwriter, Isaac Watts, who captured the necessity of the sacrifice of Jesus in his hymn at the cross. Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? Was it for crimes that I have done he groaned upon the tree? Amazing pity, grace unknown, and love beyond degree. Yes, it was for the crimes that I have done he groaned upon the tree. There's an amazing message of gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is my crimes, it's your crimes that is our sinful breach of God's righteousness that brought our great substitute to that cross. And there the justice of God was settled for eternity. And we can't add one drop to our salvation. Uh, We cannot make one contribution to our eternity through efforts of our own hands. The full measure of God's demand for justice was met by Jesus Christ at the cross. 
Apart from his substitutionary work on the cross, we must face all the wrath and judgment of God towards sinners. Again, then, John here captures in very simple words where they crucified him. Think about that for a moment. Where they crucified him. For it was all of us who deserved more than dying by crucifixion. We deserve the eternity of God's judgment, the furious storm of his wrath forever. Because we have dared to sin against our creator and sovereign who is infinitely holy. And by nature we are children of, the wrath, of wrath, as Paul expresses it in Ephesians chapter 2. The whole human race stands be, under the wrath of God because of the fall, our fall in Adam. And we have heaped judgment upon judgment because of our following in the likeness of Adam and with our sin. Wouldn't you rather have a right relationship with God? Wouldn't you want to be on the receiving end of life rather than on judgment end? Well, then your crimes required the cross. Your guilt was so great, God's judgment so sure, the only cross of Jesus Christ is sufficient for God's justice to be satisfied and eternal life to be granted. So it is my crimes that sent him to the cross. But we also notice in the necessity of sacrifice, his righteousness. Jesus had already told those who clamored after him, except your righteousness should exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now where do you get righteousness like that? The kind that exceeds, surpasses, that overflows like a river out of its banks, the kind of diligent righteousness of scribes and Pharisees. Now, he was not speaking of simply being a good person. He was speaking of a righteousness that would give you right standing before the eternal throne of justice, before the lawgiver, the judge of the universe. And again, this phrase, where they crucified him, our only hope before a just God whose character of justice would be even the same even if he had never created man or angels, is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. When Jesus was crucified, a double transaction of righteousness occurred uh, through our substitute. The righteous judgment of God was satisfied through the bloody death, and now all the guilt that you have before God has been washed away in the, uh, because of his death. And God's demand for judgment was met in the person of his son. But you still need to be clothed in righteousness to stand before God. You cannot meet him clothed by your own feeble efforts of righteousness. And so Jesus became the end of the law of righteousness to give to everyone who believes. His righteousness has been imputed to us who are in Christ. Uh, he obeyed the law on our behalf so that all of the righteousness that he accrued by his perfect, sufficient obedience was now placed to our account. We have right standing with God because we stand in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And so no wonder Paul would write, but of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. And then we notice it's not only a willing sacrifice, a necessity, 
necessary sacrifice, but a sufficient sacrifice. Take a good look at the cross of Christ. And I hope that's what we're seeing here tonight. A good look at the cross of Christ. Don't look at your own filthy rags of self-righteousness, as Isaiah put it. For there's no sufficiency before God there. Look to him who died on behalf of sinners to bring us to God. And the sufficiency of Christ's death is seen in God's promise and his provision of salvation sufficient for the world. Notice the promise of God. Now the idea of Messiah dying on the cross was not just simply a New Testament idea. The Old Testament prophecies in numerous places gave specifics of the cross. Any study of Isaiah 53 Uh, Psalm 22, without ending at the cross, implies poor Bible study. If you read those two chapters in particular, you have to end up at the cross. Even the description of the suffering of uh, the victim of crucifixion is brought out in Psalm 22. It's interesting that the unbeliever declares the promise of God at the cross. You know who that unbeliever was? Pilate. He declared the promise of God at the cross. It says there in verse 19 of chapter 19, And Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross, and the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And that phrase, King of the Jews, was very clear in the minds of the Jews, though they rejected its implications. Pilate was meaning to taunt them and to uh, make fun of them, because they, the Jews despised him, him, and he equally loathed them, but his words were correct. The title points to the messianic promise found in Jesus Christ. And while the Jews waited for a political Messiah that would be delivered to them from the uh, deliver them from the tyranny of Rome, God had promised a Messiah that would do a whole lot more. He would deliver his people from their sins. The whole message of Isaiah 53 speaks of the sins of the people being laid upon the one who's God of God's choosing to become an untoting sacrifice. The twofold nature of our sinfulness, our fallen nature in Adam and our willful breaking of God's law is seen in those words. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. And then the wholeness that is needed by sinners is explained. The chastisement of our peace was upon him and with his stripes we are healed. We look here at verse 25. John ties the prophetic words of Old Testament to the details of the crucifixion by quoting Psalm 22, verse 18. And they said, therefore, among themselves, let us not rend it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be. And the scripture might be fulfilled, which saith, they parted my raiment among them, and for my vesture they did cast lots. These things, therefore, the soldiers did. Obviously, the Roman soldiers hadn't checked the Old Testament before they did that. They didn't say, let's have a Bible study and let's go see what uh, Psalm 22 says. No, they were fulfilling what had been given to us uh, by the psalmist. They were following the normal pattern of dividing the victim's clothing among executioners while John saw this as a fulfillment of prophetic description of a small detail at the crucifixion. And it was spoken by David a thousand years earlier. 
Now, in studying the other Gospels, it's clear that the writers saw the details of the crucifixion prophesied earlier in the Old Testament. And while the purpose of our study tonight is not to look at all those passages, it does point to a very important truth. The problem of man's enmity with God has been present since the fall of Adam. God himself promised reconciliation. He promised salvation through his own provision. And all the attempts of self-righteousness by the Jews, adherence to the demands of the law, was to show humanity that none of us are saved by our own righteousness. Only God himself can save those under his judgment. And he has accomplished this through the sufficiency of the death of Jesus Christ. So we see here the promise of God. Notice, secondly, the provision for the world. The inscription of Pilate was unknowingly pointing to Jesus, to the Messiah, and was written in three languages. Notice here in verse 20. This title then read many of the Jews for the place where Jesus was crucified was nigh to the city and it was written in Hebrew and Greek and Latin. Now while Pilate did this to chide the Jews, he was expressing a marvelous truth concerning Christ. The inscription typically described the charge against the criminal. The crime of Christ was that he was the Messiah, the Savior of sinners. That was his crime. And the three languages expressed to us that his death was not just for the Jews who spoke Hebrew, or better, Aramaic. His death was God's provision for the salvation of the world. The Latin language was the tongue of Rome. While the Greek language was the tongue of the old Greek empire and the rest of the civilized world, Jesus did not just die for Israel, but he died for the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And John expressed this beautifully in Revelation chapter 5, verse 9 and 10, where it says, And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation and hast made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. Now, while the Jews thought they were the only people of God, Pilate delivered a message they needed to see. God's interest is not in just one group of people in this earth. He's the God of the world. Uh, He's taken on salvation of sinners for every tribe, for every tongue, people, and nation through the atoning death of his son. And that's good news. For we need not look to our own merit to get us to God. That would be futile. We must look to God's provision. And so... The cross of Jesus Christ has offended many. But those of us who found refuge in it, it's a place of glory. For at the cross, Jesus Christ availed for us so much that we might be reconciled to God. I wonder, do you know that experientially tonight? Is the cross of Christ just something you sing about? Or is it something you know in its power? And I'm not necessarily talking to an unsaved person. I'm talking to Christians tonight. Is the cross of Christ powerful for you tonight? Do you come to the cross? When there's sin in your heart, when there's things not right with you, 
and God. When there's things not right between you and other people, do you come to the cross and say, Lord, you died for me. We need to turn to Jesus Christ and to see him for what he did for us. He was crucified as our substitute. And there, and there alone is refuge for sinners, even saved sinners. And I trust that we'll come to the cross and see what Jesus Christ has done for us. Let's pray. Father in heaven.